Hello, and welcome to How About We Do This Together, a podcast ministry of the Northwest Christian Network. I'm Chad Decay, and my co-host is my wife, Becca, and other incredible leaders of the restoration movement of churches. This is a podcast where we cast the net and see what truth we can bring in. Say, how about we do this together? Hey everybody, my name is Rick McKinley. I'm the lead pastor at Imago Day Community. And if you're like me, you have seen lots of stories about leaders who have fallen, created scandal, uh, toxic cultures. And while the world is entertained by that, and so many people are attracted to the scandal, inside the church as leaders, we deal with the day in and day out reality of broken leadership. And that's why I'm so excited to talk to leaders about leadership, because Jesus has given us a way to not only deal with the work of leadership, but also the heart and soul of leadership, so that we can not only start well, but finish well and lead from our soul. So I hope you'll join me for the Northwest Christian One Day. I'm excited to be there with you and address these issues and see how Jesus might form us to be better leaders. Hello, and welcome to How About We Do This Together. This is a podcast uh, part of the Northwest Christian Network. Today we are at the Northwest Christian Convention. It's the 170th convention and season two of our podcast. Um, If you hear some uh, sound in the background, it's because we are actually recording while one of our speakers is on stage, and we do not have a soundproof room. So we thank you for your flexibility and understanding on that. My name is Becca Decay. I am co-president of this year's convention with my husband. Uh, Chad Decay, also co-president and uh, pastor of a church in Eugene, Oregon, uh, and has been serving in that role for about eight or nine years. And today we are joined with... My name is Chap Clark. Hi there. And it's great to be with you guys and to be a part of this convention. Thank you. Um, I have been a Young Life staffer. Uh, I was a seminary professor for about a third of my career. And then I was a pastor for a few years down in Orange County and recently retired from that. And now I'm trying to get back into the just helping churches to do what they do, what they're called to do best. And that is to love the Lord and love one another as they love the world. I love that. Well, chap, um, uh, I actually come from, um, I don't come from like the full tradition that Becca does. Becca um, grew up here in like the Stone Campbell movement among churches. Her grandpa served as president here. Her dad served as president. Wow. So I'm, I'm new. Um, and, and one of the reasons why I was so excited about having you come out and speak with us is because I was one of your students at Fuller, Fuller Seminary when I left Bushnell, which is one of our schools. And for me, um, I think what you were just saying about um, helping churches do what they do best, that's, that's a thing that we can partner. It doesn't, it doesn't matter where we fit denominationally. It's, it's a matter of, um, being the big C church, right? The, the gathered people of God that, that do that work. 
Absolutely. One of our one of our previous speakers um, actually brought up this reality that um, that all movements of the church, all denominations, all groupings were started as a movement of the Holy Spirit, wherever they were, right? And that they all have their distinctives and their their things that they do well, things that they care about and, and prioritize. But that doesn't stop us all, churches, um, in a city, municipalities, countries, to be united in other ways. Um, so what, what I kind of want to start us off with is just talking with you um, a little bit about... Um, about coming here for for our convention in, in our particular group, which is the Stone Campbell Churches, um, I guess I kind of want to know what your experience is with, with our group. Uh, and a little bit of follow-up to that question will be, uh, what do you think is, um, is special about folks that come out of our group that you have seen and encountered and experienced? Oh, man. I, you know, I asked for softballs, and so this is just such an easy question for me to step into, and you too. Um, <clears throat> uh, as, a, as a professor at Fuller Seminary, which at the time was the largest seminary in the world, and had just a wide variety of different folks, as you guys know, uh, coming to Fuller Seminary. So when you had a, a class, whether it's a master's course or doctoral class, I literally would have two or three continents in every single class mm-hmm. and and anywhere from 10 to 30 denominations. And you'd always love the non-denominational ones who are really proud of their non-denominational status. What's, what's that line you and Wes say? Uh, uh, we are a non-denominational denomination of a brotherhood of sister churches. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a movement is what you say. And, you know, I, I call youth ministry a movement and... Uh, Kenda Dean from Princeton used to always make fun of me because she said that just doesn't approve, you know, doesn't really fit what happens when the movement of the Holy Spirit. Oh, anyway, um, my, my experience has been a, 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 a great commitment to the basic tenets of the restoration period and what's happened since that has different, you guys know, different groups use different names. I've had the most exposure to Church of Christ people. Um, we've talked about this before, and mostly through my doctoral programs. I did uh, 16 doctor of ministries uh, cohorts while I was at Fuller. And I had a whole lot of Church of Christ people. In fact, most of the Church of Christ schools in the country, their youth and family ministry professors came out of those doctor of ministry courses. So they taught me a lot, and I've had an opportunity to serve in those churches with them like I am with you guys. And so the the... There's a core commitment to the idea of taking seriously uh, what the Stone Campbell folks uh, came to believe was a necessary adjustment to what God was doing in in churches in America during that time and spread around the world um, without having this, I'm going to fold my arms and say, we're right. All the rest of you guys are wrong. (laughs) Because, yes, a movement of the Spirit is the best way to put our our label on how God started up new churches and new denominations. Sociologically, however, it's often in what somebody says, you're wrong, we're going to do it right. It's kind of like my kids uh, who are now your age or probably a little bit older. it's so easy to look 
and other people doing stuff and you get your own convictions, you look at the scriptures differently, you get with your folks and you go, ah, uh, we, re- we really need to do something different. And what I've loved about the folks in your, in your community, that's what I, word I'd use, is commitment basically to the core tenets, but an easiness of spirit to say God also works in a lot of different groups. Yeah. And uh, I'm really grateful for that. I, I, I've, I've just known from the periphery, and I've spoken a bunch and consulted some, but I've had a lot of students. So I know it's a long answer to go, way to go, hold on to that. <laughs> Great to have particular convictions as long as they don't disallow other people seeing things a little differently because of their tradition. Yeah. I think the unofficial official motto of the Restoration Movement is, in all things... No, sorry. In the essentials. In, in the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, charity. Yeah, and yeah, by the way, that's also the motto of an awful lot of startup denominations. I, you guys are older uh, than Evangelical Presbyterian, for example, EBC, but mm-hmm. that's theirs, and they, they didn't think anybody else had that before them. <laughs> well, so it's on their bumper concept, stickers, too. It? Yeah, it's great. <laughs> well, and the other day I was... I was uh, performing the funeral inside of a um uh a grange so the grange movement uh is basically just just a movement of farmers meeting in towns right the grange movement i walked into this grange in in lowell oregon and saw on the wall that exact same statement like on a seal i was like well i guess we're not the only ones (laughs) that's awesome and i don't know that we always do it well but at the core of us it is the desire that in the essentials we would be unified, and the essentials being Christ, right? So at least that's my thought. Well, and I'll try not to go so long on it, but I want to make sure I honored and still my observation for those two things. So, right. Yeah. Uh, I have a, a really, really important question to ask you. My husband here, Chad, he uh, values himself uh, an excellent learner, and he's gifted at knowledge, but as a professor of his, I want to know what kind of student he really was. Oh, outstanding. I mean, one of the <laughs> top 0.001% of, like, the most brilliant students oh, I've I'm ever sure. had <laughs> in my life. It, it meant I got a B plus, which was pretty solid. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, a B plus is, is really right near the top there. Excellent. I'm an easy B. That's what I always used to tell my students. <laughs> well, I mean, chap... Um, you know, it's been quite a few years, not that many. It's been a little over a decade since I attended Fuller. I think I came in about 2009. Uh, and in 2009, you, your first class that I took with you, you were preparing um, to do a revision of one of your books. And, and I got an opportunity to be a part of that revision. I was, I was, I, I think I was a research assistant. Did I you no make idea. it into the I forward? Did. Yeah, I'm, I'm in the book. Yeah, dude. Yeah, yeah. way to so, go. So my, my name is in this book, and this is not a plug <laughs> for me. I didn't know that. Thanks for yeah. telling me that. It's not a plug for me, or even a, a plug for Hurt. Although Hurt's um, chap's book on um, on on the adolescent um, on what it means to have a long adolescence and how that works its way out in their lives, and how we can minister to to youth in that period of time. One of the things that um, that that experience of doing doing real research, and I I say this knowing that research is a word we throw out a lot these days, right? I recall one of the things that I learned from you that stuck with me is um, not just where to find research, 
but but that reality of like when you look at a document that comes out of something like EBSCO or you know it's a it's a document created by researchers particularly in sociology you talk a lot about this that sociologically when we do research not only does the does the questions that get asked have to be good but the math has to be like you, there has to be an actual system for tabulating results and understanding what you've learned and and that for me um you know now when i hear people say i did the research i'm always thinking to myself but what does that mean like mm-hmm. that word gets thrown out a lot and so i've been thinking okay a, a minus yeah yeah <laughs> well and 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 honestly i know um i went i went doing some research for for hurt and i did three chapters gathering information i can't remember off the top of my head all three of them but basically covering different aspects of teenage life um you know whether that's parties or or just places that they experience life. I think I did sports too. I'm pretty sure I probably just gathered the same research everybody else gathered on sports because, you know, the stuff that was out there was, was the things that you could find. But one of the things that I want to ask based on all of that preamble is, is just the question about your research. Uh, we're not doing young life for so many years is when you're talking about um, adolescence, could you give me a little bit of a breakdown of of how you how you put that? Because people on on the podcast may not have that that background for you. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, my my background in young life was more just wanting kids to know Christ, and and at the time, young life, all young life people, an organization that reaches out to teenagers and young adults usually. Um, and we all had to go to Fuller Seminary. For 30 years, young life people had to go to Fuller Seminary. I didn't go to seminary because I wanted to. I went to seminary because I needed to because I had my job. I wanted kids to come to know Jesus, and I loved them. And, but I had this intuitive sense of systems and how, um, how kids would respond to different groupings and people. And more intuitive and more just my own experience. So when the theology of what it meant the biblical truth and call of what it meant to actually love kids intersected with the the sociology and the environmental realities that kids were walking with. Where's the gospel message fit into what it was like to be a teenager, especially when I was going to seminary in those early years through the 80s and and up until early 90s? Through the 80s, I guess, because in the early 90s, then I went to Denver Seminary to teach. And they made me go get a PhD. And I thought, that's dumb. I'm doing youth ministry. Who needs a PhD to do youth ministry? And, um, but they made me because I was teaching master's students. And I went to a school, University of Denver, where they, they talked about this very thing. Is It's, it's one thing to, to just grab a bunch of data and then use your own convictions to make the data fit into it. We do that in the church all the time, in messages and Bible studies, where we already believe what we believe, whether it's politically, our own history, and own tradition. This is the danger of tradition and groups that kind of pull away from everybody else. Instead of letting the Scripture speak by the Holy Spirit through the ages and in our context, what is God, what are you really saying? Same thing with research. Let the data let the data present your stuff. So 
Adolescence is something we throw out a lot, and it's been a word used for over a thousand years in the West, Western world. It's always been. There's been a period between childhood and adulthood for every culture, and every culture tries to figure out how to help kids move from childhood to adulthood. Here's the key. Throughout all of time, in every culture, uh, adults took responsibility, the society took responsibility to help kids navigate that welcoming into adulthood. What shifted was the modern world, especially uh, well, we first noticed it right around the 20s, 30s, 100 years ago. But right post-World War II, right around the late 50s, 60s, we started to really see this period between youth and adult, child and adult, was really different than it had ever been before. And what it came down to, which is the essence of the book, her, and then her 2.0 that we worked on, was it subtitled Inside the World of Today's Teenagers because this is the first generation in history all around the world now that's had to raise themselves. That's the bottom line key. Adolescence, by definition, is I'm no longer child, but I'm not yet part of the adult community. So what am I? I'm a person trying to figure it out. All of time, society helped kids do that now. And the last, especially the last 40 or so plus years, they've had to do that on their own. And so I went in to study that with this, uh, this willingness to let the data, let what is really happening shape how we think, as opposed to getting theories and forcing theories on them. So uh, I gave most of my academic life to try to study teenagers and young adults and and then helping the church interact with that in order to truly care. By the way, it hasn't gotten better since I started. I don't think I've made much of a dent like most of us haven't. But it's worse today for kids, and then the pandemic just made it far worse. They've never been more isolated, never been more alone, never met, been more um, ill-equipped to figure out who they are so they can enter into adult society. Yeah, That's adolescence. It's closing prayer. It's been a great time together. <laughs> I'm not ready to close yet. And part of the reason is, is because I'm invested. We have um, a number of teenagers in our family who are hurting in this pandemic, post-pandemic, racial injustice, political injustice. This season of life is hard for all of us. So even us as adults are struggling with the season of life. How can we as adults help our adolescents when we ourselves need help? Three things. One is we need to first help them to encounter Christ in a way that's authentically biblical but authentically real mm-hmm. and, and not connected to the externals of what Christianity is, especially evangelicals, or the labels politically, ideologically, theologically, but the Jesus Christ of Scripture, like I talked about last night, um, yeah. that's the first. Help, help them to encounter Christ. We talk about that in Sticky Faith. And some people yell right when I say that. That's what's really cool. I love that. People get so upset. No, I don't want to be an authentic Christian. I just want to have people know what political party I join. Yeah. No, come on. We yeah. need to help them form in the image of Christ. And we need to let them know Christ is, is real. So mm-hmm. spiritual formation. Okay. Secondly is we need to help teach them who they are, identity, theologically. Their identity is and their vo- is not a vocation of being a doctor or a nurse or a teacher or a therapist. 
Their vocation is to be an agent of the kingdom. The call of Christ elevates us to a much bigger story than how we get our paycheck. And so uh, kind of a leadership development, every young person needs to be told and equipped. You are called by God to be a leader in the context of your gifts and wherever you go, wherever you're led. And who you see yourself to be is this agent of the king because you're his beloved child that he has created for a purpose to join him. And so if you got spiritual formation, leadership development, thirdly, empowerment in community. That a seven-year-old needs to have some kind of voice and ability to make an impact in community, not just relegate. Youth ministry for too long kind of cherished the idea that we go off into the, our own room. Let's have our own building in the bigger denominations. And I've always rejected that based on data, both sociological and theological, is that's the worst thing to do to young people, is we need to empower them within so that we, when we hear a 13-year-old talk about faith and they mean it, that ought to get the 40-year-olds to sit up and go, wow, I haven't felt that in years. Mm. I, I'm not sure I wake up in the morning to think about how I'm going to impact the kid I eat lunch with. So spiritual formation, leadership development, and empowering within community all three of those take an intentionality of presence where we are literally enveloping kids with a community. I use this, and this bit came out of uh, some, a lot of research I've done, but William Damon from Stanford. We wrote about in Sticky Faith, Carapel and FYI talk about a lot, the five-to-one thing, yep. where every child needs at least five non-parental adults in their life who know them, who value them, who walk alongside of them. Not to go knock it off, but more to go, here's who you are, how can I help, here's an opportunity, I need your voice in my life. So if your kids, you got that presence of five to one, doing those three things, Mm -hmm. that's going to turn it around. And I can attest to the value of that in my own life because I had wonderful parents, very faithful, steady parents, but the biggest impact on my faith were those other five people who stepped into my life and said, here's who you are in the kingdom. Awesome. Mm-hmm. So that's that to me is the key of making sure that the entire church communities have to surround anybody, not only kids, but anybody who feels like they're an outsider and they're disconnected. Unity is not simply about talking unity from the the core committed people. Mm-hmm. Unity is the inside dominant group of any church or community, uh, faith community, that they recognize outsiders need their love to be a magnetic presence. So mm-hmm. they, unity is drawing together those on the outside and bringing the whole body of Christ into the inside. Well, chap, I I I'm not sure if I heard this right, but it sounded like that last one was that kids kids should be seen and heard. I was always told that kids should be seen but not heard. Yeah, well, people need to go to school. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're telling me the data actually says something about that? That just that just sounds ridiculous. I don't I don't know how that's possible. Seen, heard, and listened to. Yeah. That third yeah. one. 
matters too. You yeah. know, it's so funny. So as a daughter of a pastor, um, I had the privilege of taking my pastor home with me every day after church and asking him more questions, right? And as I got older, I had even more questions because I was really getting into who this God is. And, and I remember one day I was a teenager at this point, and I was asking my dad all sorts of tough questions that I'm sure he really valued. <laughs> and he said, Becca, I'm off duty. But then, <laughs> but then he came back around and he answered them. But there was that moment where he was like, I'm done preaching. <laughs> you know, for, I don't know who listens to this, the demographics. I don't know if you guys have studied that. But for those folks also that are a little bit older, mm-hmm. the, the game doesn't, it doesn't start when they hit high school. It starts when they're little children. But it's not done when they're in their 20s and 30s. Oh, no. Because those are the times, this whole deconstruction of faith, they're not deconstructing faith necessarily they're deconstructing the institutionalization of faith yeah and the false image of what they've seen their whole life that that's that church has turned off so many kids young adults so that that ability to let them say those things is so crucial all through the lifespan right yeah so keep asking those questions becca i'll never stop (laughs) you know um I, i mean the reality is I was, I was doing a little bit of research just in, in terms of, you know, um, stuff that you've done, Jap. And I think, I think I'm just on a basic search of books that you've written. It goes back to uh, the late 80s, like 87 or 88 was one of the first times you, you published wow. something. Nice. Yeah. 87, yeah. Something like that. Um, <laughs> there, there was one that I, I was suddenly interested in that I'd not even known about dads and daughters that you wrote. Kind of, Way kind of, to go. yeah. Like it was, it was back there, yeah. And 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 Beck and I have two little girls, and I and I, I know for a fact that I'm in over my head. That I'm gonna, I'm gonna need a lot of, um, a lot of wisdom and and um, a lot of ability to hear them and love them and understand, you know, that all the all the feelings and all the things. And so I was excited about that, but I also know there's kind of the big ones. We've sort of hinted around there's there's hurt uh, and hurt 2.0 there's um sticky faith which which you did a lot of work with and which which Kara Powell and and the Fuller Youth Institute have kind of built a lot off of that concept um uh, your most recent book is adoptive church uh and and that one you know at least in title and even in some of its development is is not just arguing for for adolescents it's talking about but how we do the how we do the thing that isn't just a Sunday morning thing, right? right? Can you can you talk to me a little bit about that, just so that folks can kind of hear that from from you? Yeah, this uh, and I'll try to be. I am not, especially on a summer hot summer day morning. I'm not very terse. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> that's, that's fine. I want to hear. So. Um, I I saw early on in the youth ministry movement when youth specialties was kind of the only game in town internationally. And I was got to be one of the people in the center of that. Uh, that the movement of youth ministry was really away from any trajectory after high school. You met Christ, you had a disciple, and you're done. And very little intentionality to connect to other believers. What do we do with kids once they graduate? So I'm one of the first ones because I was now starting. To, I wasn't teaching much, but I was seeing that we were not connecting kids to the church. This is in the 80s. Right. Um, and so I wrote a, wrote a book in the late 90s with a couple of people called Starting Right, 
a Practical Theology of Youth Ministry is yeah. a textbook. Yeah, that one's uh, on my shelf because oh. I'm pretty sure I, I'm pretty sure that was the text that I had. It was it was this yeah. professor at Fuller who <laughs> demanded I buy that book so I could yeah. learn. Yeah. yeah, but I only wrote three chapters of it, so you know there's twenty yeah. something. In that book, I actually write that the goal of youth ministry is assimilating kids into the body of faith. You probably know this yeah. journey. Yeah, assimilation was was the word I heard a lot from you in those, yeah, in those days. Yeah, in those days, assimilation. But I had a doctoral student somewhere along the way that uh, took that back to her church, who's senior pastor, African-American, Seventh-day Adventist, as it turned out. So she had all these qualifiers attached to her, and she gave a sermon on this, and her church almost fired her mm. because— she came back the next year of this cohort and said, we don't like the word assimilation because here's what it means. I get to assimilate with you if I become you. Hmm. This is just about the case with just about any institution that we've developed in Western society, especially North American society, is that we say we have a rhetoric of, yeah, come join us. But don't mess with our system. Don't mess with us. Like our music, dress like us, talk like us, fit into our culture, and make us comfortable by your presence, and then we'll love you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can be part of us. Yay. And as soon as she said that to this cohort, we all went, you're dead right. That's what we do, and that's why youth ministry kids don't want to go to church. Um, this is 30 years ago. Uh, so we started batting around. What are other words? Actually, four, 20 years ago. And and started theologically going into what? how did the, the, the New Testament deal with disunity in the church and factions when church really wasn't a unified community? And, and luckily, scriptures are full of that because the from Romans all the way to the end, those are all letters, four gospels, acts, of apostles, and then from Romans on are letters that contextualize the gospel of Jesus arriving and bringing in his kingdom. So in all those letters, they would talk about what's going on in these churches. And the number one metaphor that Paul used to describe how the church needs to see itself, its own corporate identity, was in a family, a fam- what's called a familial notion of who we are together. The notion of family is so strong in the New Testament because what Paul says is, don't you realize you're all functional orphans because of the fall? And in Christ, as we come to faith, we are, John one twelve. to all who received him, who all believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, plural. He moved from being a functional, disconnected orphan, Luke 19, I've come to seek and save the lost. That's the heart of Jesus' coming, was to take the lost and make them children of God. Well, when Paul uses that idea that we're all children of God, so that reduces the power and hierarchy of generations and pastoral leadership, and and it empowers the weakest member. Then the gift passages for it's twelve Romans twelve. The everybody's got a gift. Everybody matters. And Paul uses this language, a very technical Greek term. Don't you realize you've been adopted to sonship? Three times in Romans, once in Ephesians, once in Galatians. He uses this idea, you're all adoptive siblings of the king. Live like it. Mm-hmm. So adoptive church, I know it's not going to take off like missional church, but the idea is 
if we really are the church, we need to drop our power, drop our control by those on the inside, and lift up the weakest among us, serve one another, wash each other's feet, and see what the Lord does. There you go. Well, and, that um, was terse. That was yeah, <laughs> basically, basically just a couple words. It was not bad. Um, you know, I one of the one of the arguments, one of the things, discussions I had a lot over a certain period of time in ministry uh, is is a discussion around what's what's really come to light in the last couple of years with with what's going on with with racial unrest and this feeling of not being part of society in the, in the way that other people are. And what's interesting to me is, is that that language of adopting and being family is used in Philemon to address the slave master dynamic. Like Paul doesn't dismantle slavery, but he basically says, just remember that person's your brother. Like you can't be, you can't hold slave master. You can't treat people a certain way if they are your family. Like, at least you you ought not, right? right? And so to see that reality of of, I mean, people were adopting people that literally had no value. Well, and here and here's a big key. I, I'm sorry to jump in, but no. it's ever since I've written it on a, there's two or three books three books that are out that has to do with this, and uh, people tend to easily apply it to oh I get it we adopt kids we adopt the weak the marginalized maybe use a Philemon that uh but when you adopt and you're the adoptor mm-hmm. then you have a hierarchy hierarchically assigned power so you are the great benefactor and you're lucky enough that i'm going to adopt you that's not what this theology is this is the other it's the opposite of that yep. it's i'm like i said last night i'm the little faith in mm-hmm. matthew in matthew 14 I, i'm the one who needs Christ desperately, and so are you, and we're in exactly the same boat. I may be 60 or 80, and you may be 12. I may be this political party. You may have these convictions. But I need to lay my life down before you and learn from you and love you, wash your feet, because we are the same in Christ. We are we are these siblings called together. We have one elder brother that is Jesus. We have one father, and and mother was the metaphor in the Old Testament as well, as this heavenly parent. And we got to knock off this powered thing and the control thing. That's it's killed evangelicalism. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I um, I think you know, I feel like some of these have been softballs in the sense that we've we've asked you about things you've written, things that you've talked about. So. You know, you you started in Young Life. You spent quite a bit of time in in academia. Uh, you worked your way through all those things. That's where I encountered you. Of course, I got the benefit of traveling to Ireland with you. Which, if you're going to do academia uh, and you're, you're so traveling, fun. yeah, you're oh. traveling through Ireland. Uh, yeah, no, that pretty much destroys it. But Becca tells me I have to take her to Ireland someday. It's, that's it's one of the, that's yeah. one of the, the things that you our do. marriage has to include. <laughs> it's in the unwritten laws. It's it's in the unwritten. Vows, but yeah. the the thing that I know has happened with you over the last you know several years, last four particularly, um, is is that you know you you took on a church. You went you went from from academia. You went from um, from that that research and development and understanding and trying to encourage churches to do the work 
you went from that into a church setting and and fortunately or unfortunately you ended up there in the midst of just crisis after crisis after crisis after crisis whether it's pandemic whether it's it's um, political unrest whether it's you know um, dynamics of racial injustice and and hatred and all of the things all of the things that have happened over the last three or four years and How, and firing a choir director just before i got there yeah but you always have to fire the choir director yeah, yeah. <laughs> no not me just before so okay. yes <laughs> so now i ask this question you've you've taught and written and, and thought a lot about what it means to be that church that that operates not as fathers over children but as adopted siblings living together side by side giving voice to all on the out on the outer edges as well as the inside how did that how was that to try out in a setting where you were running or you were um, in the leadership of a church? I, I, I want to know how that looked and how that felt and the difficulties you ran into. Um, let me first say the biggest learning curve that I'm still dealing with have to do with me, not them. Uh, my own way of going about living my life, how I would speak, how I'd joke, how I would lead, mm-hmm. um, my insecurities. I, I, based on my young life days, it's always that last kid. You, you know, you get the 30 or the 80 in the room, 80 in those days. Mm-hmm. It's that one kid that doesn't care. And in, in the young life heart, and I still got that DNA in me, it's that kid that I got to figure out how to reach because... Everybody else is in, they like it, yay, but that kid. So when you're a pastor, especially of a bigger church, it's impossible. Yeah. Because it, it handicapped. Every time I'm standing up there, I'm handicapped by the one with the facial expression or that written me the horrible email or the whatever. Um, and that's me. That's my problem. So I want to first say this: the, the church is a beautiful combination of severely broken people. And and so there's a lot of beauty and there's an awful lot of ugly in the midst of it because we're just ordinary broken people who are needing forgiveness of Christ and the redemption of the king. Um, that all said, the naivete that I went in with was they were really ready for me to help them to go to that next level of adoptive. And that... And most bigger churches, especially, we're, we're in a we're in a huge cultural tsunami. Not just, I mean, in every way, but it's localized in the evangelical church movement. Um, you know, there's some evangelical churches that are that are already they are so culturally oriented that they're not facing this tsunami of the pain. But most evangelical churches have just I mean, everybody's so confused. How in the world do we? agree in anything you, you open the scriptures you can't help but almost read a sentence without somebody using it as a on the an msnbc or fox one way or the other how do you how do you get people to be unified in the middle of that that's what you're asking what i realize is this the church is a slow grinding bureaucratic institutional place that desperately needs to continue to have Jesus put at the very center and remind us of who we are and 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 build with what is there. I do believe that the Church of Jesus Christ 
needs to go through some pretty significant pruning by the Spirit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think the ones that are being pruned, and I, the word I'm using more is sanded. I feel like I got, I didn't get the 220. I got the 05, man. The, yeah. You know, big pieces of big rock. Grit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I need my soul sanded because I think I'm right. And that's what I think has got to be happening more and more. Hopefully the time I was there, it was literally five years, um, was learning a lot about myself and trying to somehow make a difference in the midst of it, but giving the Holy Spirit room to do that. Continuing to call people back to Jesus as King and the humility of a soft heart. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to be my message from now on. Um, I. I have to tell you, Chap, um, I, w- when we were planning for this convention and, and we were talking on Zoom, um, I'm a little bit of a Peter. I, I mean, I really resonate with Peter. Uh, I'm impulsive and I, I'm passionate and I'm zealous. And there was a moment in our conversation because I know the culture that we're in and I know that God's about to do a mighty work in the church, but there's that pruning that's necessary. And that pruning uh, in, in my mindset needs to be a little more severe because of my passion and love for Jesus, right? So so I had this moment, I had this Peter moment where where I said something and I, I basically pulled out my sword and chopped off an ear and you're like, hmm, Becca, we're not we're not doing it that way actually. You like, like so I don't remember what happened. What a ne- metaphor though. What a, yeah. What an image. So, yeah. So much humility. But I really appreciate um, in your leadership and in your wisdom and in your years of experience and research that you do come at uh, that needed change with also this tenderness. So you're talking about the grit, big grit, but I also see from you the heart of Jesus is this tenderness. Like, like it might need to get pruned, but there's also so much love to walk us through that pruning process. Thank you. Um, you guys, I... <laughs> course of my life and I'm and I'm getting older now um, I really believe that the point has to be the tenderness of Christ Brennan used to put it this way the relentless tenderness of Jesus and uh, I, Brennan Manning is that right yeah Brennan yeah, Manning Brennan sorry Manning, yeah. no I, I I just wanted to say it because I'm sure I have that book on my shelf are I'm, you a ragamuffin because I'm a ragamuffin yeah. well I'm yeah. going to mention ragamuffin yeah, tonight, yeah. actually yeah um, but he's, in, he's got another line that he claims was from the New Orleans evangelist in the early early 18th century before the restoration movement got the label uh, is I have been let's see seized by the power of a great affection oh wow if and that's the, that's where the tenderness has to come in is I need to continually be seized by the power of a great affection. The, the great affection is reaching out to me and grabbing me with great love, but I resist it so much out of my own insecurity, brokenness, arrogance, rightness, you know. Mm-hmm. And that I, I, have, I have a great confidence in the power of Christ and the movement of the kingdom. And that's why I just want to figure out how to get people coming clean. That's one more thing about being a pastor. Um, we had a couple of really serious crises that I haven't really shared with hardly anybody, that, and I can't share details. But they would have been so much better if people would just allow themselves to come clean mm-hmm. 
and repent and tell the truth. And there's so little of that now. Mm. We are so afraid of being honest and being vulnerable and being shown not to, to be less than who we are. The social media thing and all that has ruined us. But I, that's what I'm trying to do is I'll rip my scabs off and let me help you <laughs> to rip your scabs off. I, you know, I think somewhere in, in the history of Christianity, when, when we knew we were called to be salt and light to the world, we convinced ourselves that we couldn't also be broken. Yeah. Well, I would say that that is primarily a Western, European, and full-fledged American exceptionalism. I mean, some people won't like that, but the American exceptionalism of this is God's, God put us here because we're the best country on earth. It's kind of like, wow, wait a minute a second. You think the Lord loves me more than a Nigerian 12-year-old who had lost his parents? Mm-hmm. I, there's no chance that that's true. Yeah. Yeah, it's just manifest destiny point 2.0. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, boy, did we open that little can of worms. And, <laughs> and the reality is, the reality is, you know, Becca and I struggled a lot through through the pandemic, and we listened to a lot of things, and we, you know, we we heard people around us, and we... You know, we went out to hear more. You know, even in the midst of the pandemic, we went out to hear what was going on because because even though we're trying to be safe and wise, we're still trying to still trying to be able to to be changed by the power of Christ moving uh, in places that we didn't think we would have to. Right. But but one of the pieces of that experience of of that is starting to hear stories coming out. You know, um, and there's a ton of popular stuff about just sort of large scale brokenness in lots of churches. You know, you can you can tag the label evangelical on a lot of things. Um, you know, because it's it's a five point. You know, here's what we believe concept somewhere at its core. You know, the power of scripture and things like that. There's a lot of evangelicals, a lot of people who believe in those things. But man, um, I, I don't think I've gone a week without hearing a conversation about. Um, um, you know, mistreatment of people that work for you in churches. You know, you can you can hop on and, and listen to the Mars Hill podcast, and you're going to hear plenty of that. Um, uh, or hearing about mistreatment um, of of some other nature, whether that's um, Ravi Zacharias or um, you know um, the names. You could you can list names for days now of folks that have done uh, terrible things of different varieties as as. PowerPoints in the church, like you're saying, uh, so many powerful, powerful people, and and so few stories of of handling that well. So few, like it's it's beginning to be the exception to find a church that that has powerful members and leaders that are wide open to the voices on the outside, right? Like you've been talking about, and and looking at our world and looking at kids we we had this conversation yesterday which maybe somebody in the podcast will have heard or seen with some of our presidents we have a couple uh couple schools that come out to this a lot uh, Bushnell and Boise Bible College are usually here and then we have a seminary that drops in um Emmanuel School uh in Tennessee and the question the conversation was what is this generation like this current rising generation of kids uh young people 
And they said something like they're tenacious. Like they, they want to change the world. They have a lot of tenacity to achieve things. They want, they want justice. They want to see good in the world in many different ways. Um, and yet, you know, and, and yet, um, with all the brokenness, it's hard, it's hard for them to focus on what that is, right? They're, it's tenacious in every direction. Is what they said. Tenacious in every direction. Um, and their argument was that we need to combat that tenaciousness by introducing them not to truth, uh, like as a concept, but to Christ as truth, the, the way, the truth, and the life is what they were talking about. Um, and my, my thinking is, you know, if we're talking about adolescents and growing kids and having those adults that speak into their life, the five adults that can make a difference, man, looking out there, is, is the church the place for kids to find that community? Like, I mean, it just seems like brokenness all around. So, so <laughs> do we point kids back to the church? What do we do? Yeah, you know, loaded within what you said, there's a lot there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I... Part of me wants to say, get me on the stage with those speakers and give me a microphone and let's have at it together for half an hour. Because I, I still study, um, in case I do a Hurt 3.0, I still study the and millennial and Gen, Gen Z and now Gen Alpha Gen. Um, I would not use the idea of multiple tenacity or anything Anything that blames a kid for being a kid is misplaced, in my mm-hmm. opinion. Yeah. It's what we have offered to them, and so they figured out how to navigate with the cards they've been dealt. And then we blame them for playing those cards. I don't, I, I don't go there. Yeah. I go the other direction is, wh- what is the world we've handed to them? Which is the point of the Hurt series. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is the church the place? Um, I think people who have soft hearts and who have a level of maturity and self-awareness and, and accountability in their lives to be genuinely um, caring and a companion, yes, is a great hope for kids, the five to one. I think the church is a better hope than is the world, although there's a lot of secular people and evangelicals hate this. A lot of secular people that are way more self-aware and healthier than people in the church because they got no reason not to be vulnerable. Right. We got a reason because you got to pretend like just in case the facade falls and everybody else accuses you. So people, yes, the institution of the church has to shift in mm-hmm. this direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, or kids are going to go, and they do. They are now. I mean, it's it's dying. Colleges or Christian colleges are dying, um, but they're holding on because parents are figuring a way to navigate their kids into it. Yeah, seminaries though, much different deal because yep. when you hit twenty, twenty four, twenty five, you're kind of going, I'm not, I'm not spending a lot of time and money giving into this institution that I don't trust at all. I think giving them to Jesus in a community of healthy people is the hope. Yeah. Institutions of churches who are unwilling to to foster that, no, is not the help. And uh, this is part of the pruning and reckoning I think has got to happen. I, 
I don't know if you remember this. I, I don't know if I taught it when you were there in your classes, but there's a long history of the movement from a, a fresh organic idea that gets contextually applied where almost always it becomes organizational and therefore institutional. You remember this? Uh, I well, talk about it in that book a little you, bit. You do, but I actually want to point us back to, to our friend Patrick. Because this is I'm seeing I'm seeing something here. Yes. So you and I took absolutely a, you and right. I took a trip to Ireland. We talked a lot. We we read a few books, really really great books, and and basically the things that Patrick wrote are actually pretty pretty small. Patrick wrote kind of a kind of a really brief autobiography. Right. There's not much to it right. really. So you can glean some things. But he's hard he's hard to get a handle of. But there's a legend. There's there's legend around Patrick and his ability to evangelize an entire country of people who were not only insular but tribal, right? You got you got a tribal. You community. learned well. Way to go. So we hey. have, we, have, we have we have these tribal communities. We have we have we have an entire Ireland island. Ireland is an island, so island of people who are in clans and small groups. And and one clan doesn't necessarily trust the next clan over. And so you've got this reality where I, where where Patrick has a heart to save the people that enslaved him, which is number one already right. crazy, already absolutely insane. And he goes to this place and he he figures out every methodology he can to to make inroads into each of these little clans and and to work for the kingdom of, of Jesus Christ in that space. Go from that one to the next one, from that one to the next one, from that one to the next one, in whatever method he can. And he's wise, he's careful, he uses resources. I, I believe the church around him was frustrated that he spent money to bribe his way into a community to like, I, I want this king to listen to me, so I'm going to offer him tribute, and then I'm going to be in his community, and they're all going to become Jesus followers, and then I'm going to move on to the next one. Right. And and the other methodology we talked about, which I want you to, I want you to kind of, unfortunately, have to synthesize all of this blather. But there's a moment too where we talk about the the model of monastery in that time. So monasteries in our minds are these sort of walled gated communities where you have to go into them. The monastery model that seems to have been the Irish monastery model was one in which it was an open community that that worked out practices of of faith, which that's another piece. Um, a lot of the youth specialties guys talked about um, spiritual development in practice but they would do these practices together and they would pair each other up the word is is anamkara or, nice. or oh soul friend right we, we this is where we get the this is where we get the idea of the the soul mate right you know how to make an old retired professor feel like hey i did do something look <laughs> at you chad Yes. So great. the Anam the Anam Kara, these two folks, He's they're paired up. They're, they're paired up like Jesus paired up people in Luke and sent them out. They're sent out. So they come in this community, they pray, they do the practices together. They have this one person they confess to. It's where Catholic confession kind of comes from, that that like really, really deep relenting of all the things, all the brokenness. And they go out in these pairs and they serve and love people side by side. And they come back, they're refreshed, they go back out. And people come into that community, develop their care, go out in pairs. So that's a that's a ministry model, basically. It's a it's a concept for doing ministry, but it's creative and it's thoughtful and it works in its specific context. So tell me what's what's our Patrick what what are we gonna do that's thoughtful, that's Christ centered, 
that's out there doing that thing that Patrick somehow somehow figured out how to do that? Um, it, it, little nuance to what you said, and you're absolutely accurate in everything you said. Is is at first they would come in and come alongside these these clans had a king and they would sit up shop right next to him and pay him tribute but they'd farm and they'd give him food so, and they would use farming methods that they had learned from the Romans so um, they were serving mm. that the community next door and they invited they also had the thing about you you can belong before you believe mm. that's a big one too you don't have to join you don't have to assimilate yeah, you don't have to come in and like our weird songs because <laughs> they're weird, you, and nobody ever sings it, you know. <laughs> but you, you you come in and you just get to be part of it. In other words, it's this relational, service oriented, no hierarchy, no agenda other than Jesus Christ mm-hmm. and His great love. That is a model for us. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, most of the church planning. They plant a church so they can get big enough to just be an ordinary church with hierarchy and manuals and policies and don't get on the Johnson Memorial carpet. Well, but, but Jeff, all I know is that I have to create a church that's so attractive, everybody, everybody comes to me, right? That's how we do that. Yeah. It, but not church planners, usually, yeah. because they, they, you know, they, they'll try to do stuff like this, but their goal is always to build enough of a church that then you can have the hierarchy and the organization, the institution, and the children's ministry and get it. Mm-hmm. As opposed to a fresh new idea of what is church in the first place. It's a bunch of people that are so committed to each other without a lot of power, using their gifts, and there's hierarchy and structure, but not hierarchy and relationship. That's big. Because then you have, then you have a community that's authentic where Christ can actually speak in the midst of the community, and this is where people will be attracted. In this culture, people are desperate for somebody who is safe and warm and inviting. Yeah, absolutely, especially yeah. kids. Yeah, but millennials—they're dying. What do they do after they? What does a Christian kid do when they leave Bushnell? Okay, and then they go to Portland and they get a job, or worse, Seattle. Okay. And they work for Amazon, and the only place that they could go to some big old church that has a huge singles ministry, but even that's just weird. What, or they we go do- to a club. Or a and dating app. What's that? Or a dating app. Yeah. Well, dating app is usually for people that have already been through all the social stuff. Mm. The, 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 the dating app is kind of your last shot <laughs> for most of them. Because they got nothing else... They, Nowhere else to go. And and middle-aged people, they're leaving the church too. And older people are leaving the church like crazy. It's There's no place where you can gather where Jesus matters, but but people can be real and we care about everybody. Then we have to compromise specifics, which you believe theologically. That's where Christians really mess it up. Because we argue about things that cut us off from, from real ordinary people. So I... Patrick's perfect, but I don't see a whole lot of models of it. I I see a lot of individual Christians that are caring for their neighbors, that are serving soup kitchens, that are walking, um, helping restore a forest area or whatever. I mean, serving hospitals. 
Christians would just realize that our vocation is the kingdom of God. And we lay our lives down and wash the feet of those who are different and hurting and just need a friend. Kids will. That's the place where young kids, your kids need to grow up. But listen, I got five grandkids, a little bit older than yours. And I'm so deeply concerned about this. But I believe that Christ is going to do his thing. It just may not look like what we see now. Mm, yeah. Mm, yeah. Mm. <laughs> I don't know if this is the podcast. Any, if you hung around for this whole thing, you, you're either on a very long drive because you're not working out. <laughs> yeah. Well, not, not, unless, not, unless you, not unless you're really, really developing those muscles yeah, for, for becoming like Thor. If, if you want to be Thor, this is your podcast. If you're so. mad, take this to your friends and your small group. And and go after it. Yeah, yeah. Have a real conversation about that. Yeah, about all of this stuff. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about this stuff. You know, but it, it the sounds reality like reality is it's it's actually been a really rich conversation. Yeah. So if if listeners are still in at this point, they are blessed because this has been a good conversation. Yeah. And we could keep talking for hours. Yeah, I could. Um, but uh, if you are listening, I hope that you will. Um, check out some of our resources. Chap is here at the convention speaking. He spoke last night and he'll speak tomorrow night. So we've got a couple of videos up on our website, nwchristiannetwork.com. We also hope you'll tune in for uh, for next week's podcast. Um, But in the meantime, and in all faith and genuineness. How about we do this together? Amen. Amen. Thanks, you guys. This episode was produced by Austin Schumacher. Theme, written and performed by Scott Riggin. How about we do this together as a podcast of the Northwest Christian Network, a network of Christians and churches gathering together to serve the kingdom and cast their net across the Northwest. Find out more about our ministries and events at www.nwchristiannetwork.com. I'm Chris Dunning. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.